One of the uh, songs that we, we sing in our church, and perhaps you sing this in your car or at work, is the song, You Cannot Be Stopped. It's written by Phil Wickham. And in this song, there is a verse that reads as follows. Mover of mountains, breaker of chains, Jesus has triumphed over the grave. Sing hallelujah. The battle is won. Nothing can stand against our God. There's nothing that can stop our God. It's a great song. The words are simple. The words are clear, but they are robustly biblical. In fact, the message of Acts chapter two is just that. In that verse, the writer declares the power of God. He declares the victory of Christ over sin. And the song is dedicatory in a sense. And that in declaring it, we are declaring that we have acknowledged the power of God and that we have staked our lives upon it. And that essentially is the outline of Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, we have this wonderful miracle whereby God through his Holy Spirit breaks through one of the greatest barriers in a broken world. And that is a language barrier. You know, since the time of Babel, when humanity tried to gang up on God and usurp their supremacy, God confused the nations. And now we have all these languages that exist on the planet. And one of the greatest barriers to having a relationship with someone is the potential fact that you may not speak their language. If you speak a language that someone else speaks, there's opportunity for relationship, but it's, it's hard to have a relationship with someone if you do not speak their language. So it is a, a barrier in a world like ours, but in Pentecost, we have sort of a reversal of Babel in that God's spirit descends upon his people. And as they are united in their public worship of Christ, the language barriers disappear and the gospel is able to literally go global. It's able to go global. And in this miracle of Pentecost, we have a testimony about the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us. So there's the miracle of Pentecost whereby God transcends language barriers. Then Peter steps up and he testifies to the purpose of that event, points people to the work of the Davidic King, Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the passage is a call for us to respond in repentance and faith. So again, this is the second of a series of messages, Lord willing, I intend to preach entitled Lessons from the Early Church. I wanna read for you verses one through 13 to get us going in Acts chapter two. And what we're gonna see here is God's power, the gospel transcending culture and language barriers. So the context is set. We have a, a time given to us that indicates when this happened, the circumstances are given to us, the event happens before our eyes. We wanna to try to understand it and then move into the rest of the chapter. So let me start with the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That is all the early disciples, about 120 believers. And suddenly there came from heaven. So the source of this is not human. The source of this is divine. 
There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. You'll know if you've studied scripture that God often uses this this idea of wind to demonstrate his presence. In in Exodus chapter 33, verse eight, verse 18, Moses encounters God in a a wind-like event. Wind is powerful. It can be It can be good, it can dry the earth, but it can also be destructive. And here it's symbolic of the power of God poured out upon his people. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So again, the source of their power is not self-induced, it's the Spirit of God. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men. That's important because we're gonna meet some not so devout men in the text momentarily. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So let's just pause for a moment. Galileans were people that inhabited the Northern part of Israel. So down more or less in the middle, geographically you have Israel, a lot of desert to the South or sorry, Jerusalem, a lot of desert to the South. And if you kind of come up around the, the, um, the Sea of Galilee, you have this area called the, the area of the Galileans. And the Galileans were not the elite of Israel. They were sort of the equivalent of your rednecks, sort of your Essex Countyites, <laughs> living in one of the two armpits of Ontario, not living in Montreal or Vancouver or Toronto, just average people. And so there is a bit of a, a dig given to them when the more elite Jews, the non-devout, especially, who are living in Jerusalem are like, what in the world? We're hearing this these words from God, from Galileans, the, the rednecks, the hicks. We'll come back to that in a bit. Verse eight then says, and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue? Well, that's kind of weird because I thought they were Jews. Why do they have all these native tongues going on? Here, here are the native tongues, by the way. It's not an extensive list, but it's a partial list, I'm sure. There's the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of... Mesopotamia, that's a whole region from which Abraham originally came. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. What's a proselyte? It's a non-Jew who has believed in the true and living God and become part of the covenant community. So all believers, all people that were devout to the things of God. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed. I'm sure all of us would be as well, saying to one another, what does this mean? In other words, they witnessed the miracle. How are we supposed to interpret this? But others mocking said, Oh, they're filled with new wine. 
So the circumstance is Pentecost, which took place 50 days after what we call Easter. And the Jewish calendar mandated that this would have been the festival called the Feast of Weeks. So it's the Feast of Weeks. Jewish people had over the previous generations migrated out of Israel, what was called the the Roman province of Palestinia at the time. And they had settled in Egypt and Phrygia and Mesopotamia. And they'd practiced their faith in all of these regions surrounding Israel. But the devout ones would return to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks. So that's why they're there. But having not been in Israel for several generations, many of them wouldn't have spoken Hebrew or the broader language known as Aramaic or even Greek. So the question is, this is a wonderful opportunity for the gospel 50 days after Christ's resurrection. This is a great opportunity for the apostles to preach the gospel to a more or less captive audience, but there were all these language barriers. If you don't speak Hebrew, you don't speak Aramaic and you don't speak Greek, how's the gospel gonna get to you? Well, this is where God performs a miracle. And he hop, skips, and jumps over these linguistic barriers. And he gives this gift whereby this small, relatively small group of believers can now preach the gospel beyond the linguistic barriers and give an opportunity for people to hear about Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit fills the house. He gives Christians the ability to speak these foreign languages. And it wasn't like they quickly went off to language school and learned them on the fly or you know, downloaded some app so you could learn a language quickly. It was instantaneous. This was a supernatural ability. This was not from man's efforts. This was from God's gifting through his Holy Spirit. And the, the message goes out, as we're going to see, and many repent and believe. Upwards of 3,000 actually believed on this particular day. Now, while the filling of the Holy Spirit would and does happen in our lives time and time and time again, as we surrender ourselves to him, this was a unique experience in that for the first time in the history of the covenant people of God, the Holy Spirit would actually indwell his own. If you study the old covenant scriptures, you'll notice the Holy Spirit is very active in the Old Testament. But the language there is different. He comes on, he comes upon, he empowers Saul, he empowers David, he empowers Samuel. But now we have this new age where the spirit of God comes and actually indwells and fills the people of God. And the result is that the the diaspora, the scattered Jews, those living in all these different regions and towns and areas around Israel would hear the gospel in their own language and take it back and plant churches and win other people to Christ. Just to give you some perspective, historians tell us just in Egypt alone, there were probably a million Jews living there at this point in time. So there were more Jews outside of Israel than there were in it. And this is one of the reasons why when God sent mighty men like Paul to plant churches throughout the Galatian province and in Rome and other places, some went into North Africa, presumably there are already small gatherings of true believers who had been at Pentecost that had returned to these areas and could form the nucleus 
for new churches. Now, what often happens when God moves is that other people mock and ridicule. And that's what we see here. God is moving and the devout are awed by it, but the non-devout, probably like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, folks of that ilk, educated, knowledgeable, but definitely not surrendered to the things of God or sensitive to the things of God. They mock and they accuse the participants of being drunk. But before we talk about them a little bit further, let me just make this point. One of the things we learn from Pentecost and other events like it in scripture is that nothing can stop our God. Nothing can stop our God. There's no barriers that God cannot move. There's no mountains he can't move. There's no walls he can't break down. Nothing can stop our God from getting through to those that he wants to get through to. And lest you doubt that, here we sit some two millennia later as the fruit of Pentecost. Because we're together, not bound up in our common ethnicity, but we're bound up in Christ. My barbarian ancestors, somewhere back in Western Europe, at some point worshiped false gods. And yet over time, the gospel started to come into to Europe and Africa and Asia and India and other places. And groups of believers rose up and planted churches and proclaimed the supremacy of Christ over creation. And we are now in a world where the gospel has circled the globe time and time again, generation after generation. So we are the fruit of Pentecost. Think about that. The reason why we're here today as people from all the tribes and tongues and people groups of the earth is because God, just like that, jumped over this otherwise seemingly insurmountable barrier. Now, just in case the rumor would take hold that they're all speaking nonsense, Peter steps up and he preaches a sermon on the event. So in some respects, my sermon today is preaching Peter's sermon. One of the things I find pretty encouraging about this is that Peter preaches this first sermon and Peter 50 days earlier had denied Christ three times. Imagine that. Imagine that the God uses broken, sinful people who have repented to preach the gospel. Perhaps some of you are like, yeah, I'm not worthy. You're right, you're not. But if you're repentant, God can use you to preach the gospel into a broken world. So having looked at the miracle of Pentecost, what Peter is going to do now is to help us to understand its purpose. So there's a wow factor. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Now, what are we supposed to do with it? That's the question they asked. What does this mean? It's, it's a wow moment. It's like looking at the resurrection of Christ. Wow. But what am I supposed to do with it? What's the purpose of it? And what Peter helps us to understand is that the gospel testifies to Jesus. Fundamentally, the gospel testifies to Jesus, the savior of the world. This man who 50 days earlier was denying Christ now demonstrates his knowledge of scripture. And he points us time and time again, back to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. 
Pentecost, the whole of the gospel, point us back to Christ. To read the Pentecostal event and not to be pointed back to Christ is to be wowed and awed, but not to actually receive what God has for you. So it says here in verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So meaning those that lived there, not not those that had come in from all these outlying regions, but the non-devout, the mockers, those that would question this event. Said to the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's like, give me a break. Your allegation is pretty lame. I mean, look, it's early, it's early in the day here. That's not what's happening. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now what Peter's going to do is he's going to take us back into the old covenant scriptures and he's going to expound upon Joel chapter two. And then later he's going to take us to Psalm 16 written by King David. Remember that. We're going to start in Joel chapter two. Joel had prophesied some 700 years earlier, the following. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. By the way, 700 years before Pentecost, Joel is prophesying that in the last days, this would happen. This happens in the first century, which tells us in the redemptive plan of God, from the time of Pentecost onward, we're living in the last days. This whole period of time is the last days. It's it's a long time. It's been 2000 years already, but it's the last days in the sense that God has accomplished everything that he needs Everything that he needs through Christ has been accomplished. And now we're simply just waiting for more and more and more people to be brought in to the people of God. Nothing else has to happen in God's redemptive timeline. So this is the last days. Then he goes on to say, even as my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So two, two points before we go on. Everybody's included in this. Men, women, young and old, and they will all prophesy. So just keep that in your mind. So what then is prophecy? Before we go any further, we need to talk a little bit about prophecy because frankly, in much of the modern church today, we have a very reduced, very limited, very narrow view of what prophecy is. Before I talk about that, let me talk about the word pastor, just to sort of give you an an analogy or an analogous word. So the word pastor in scripture means shepherd. Now, if we put a capital P on it, what we're referring to is an office, an office bearer in the church who pastors the people of God as an under shepherd. So that's an office, same word, P-A-S-T-O-R. That's an office, but pastoring if it's used in the sense of shepherding is also a spiritual gift. So in this respect, anybody in the church could potentially be gifted in the area of shepherding. They have shepherding gifts. It doesn't mean that they're in the office, but they have the gifts and ability and calling of God to 
shepherd God's people. So I'm, I'm using this as an illustration because I want you to differentiate in your mind an office, capital P, to a gift. So in the same rough way, in the scriptures, there are people that are prophets, capital P. They would be spoken to directly by God. They would prophesy and predict what would, to, what would come in part. And they would also go back and they would pick up on previous revelations that God had given through the Mosaic law, through the prophets that came before them. And they would serve as police officers over God's people. They would remind God's people, hey, let me warn you, what did God say through the prophet Elijah? Or what did God say through the prophet Isaiah? Or what did God say through the prophet Moses? Or what did God say to Adam and Eve? They would police, they would police, they would warn, they would remind. So in part, they would predict the future, lay out God's redemptive timeline, and they would also point people to the past. That's an office, but there's also a gift and a commissioning that God has given to all of his people. And in this respect, all of us are small p prophets, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what prophecy essentially is, is it's teaching with urgency and clarity and with sufficient warnings, the full word of God, which is a commission given to every believer in Matthew chapter 28. All of us are called to be heralds of the good news. All of us are called to go out in the world and say, hey, hey man, I gotta tell you something. You will die in your trespasses and sins if you do not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent of the Lord Jesus Christ as I have and put your faith in him alone and be, and be saved. That doesn't mean you're necessarily a big P prophet, but you are prophesying. And this is a commission, the great commission, which is a prophetic commission, by the way, is given to every person that declares that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Some of you might be extra specially gifted at that. You may lead hundreds of people to Christ in your life. Others of you might just lead a handful. But this explains why the spirit of God is poured on all people to equip all the believers, all the people of God to do the prophetic work of God by going into the world and reminding people that if they don't repent, they will die in their trespasses and sins and then calling them to covenant faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the passage doesn't say that all of this was fulfilled in one day. That in that moment, that was it. God poured out a spirit and no one else gets the spirit of God after that. It doesn't say that God poured out a spirit upon these, these early believers and they've done the job for us and we have nothing left to do. But rather we see, even as we move through the book of Acts, so not everybody that called upon the name of the Lord was was in Jerusalem at the time, but we see as the apostles go out and they start meeting other people that were followers of Christ. And they would say to them, hey, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? Never heard of the Holy Spirit. And they would lay hands on them and they would receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a bit of a, a time period here where, here where the, the Spirit of God is being poured out and he's filling the people of God with his presence to equip them for the work of the ministry. The gospel goes out then empowered by the spirit of God. And literally at Pentecost, we can say we witnessed the birth of the, the Christian church. So we think what's the birthday of the church? It's not Easter, it's Pentecost. This is when the church really took hold. So the, now we're, we need to talk about the content. So we witnessed the miracle. We see God jumping over all these linguistic barriers 
the languages are listed. And then we need to explore more like what was the purpose of all of this? Well, we got to go back to Joel chapter two. And what we'll see in Joel chapter two was that there's a call to repent and find forgiveness in Christ. And again, this is a message entrusted to every child of God. If you are a child of God, man, woman, boy, girl, young or old, it is your job to preach the gospel, as we call it, to a lost and dying world. Look at verse 19, 20, and 21. So he's, again, he's still quoting from Joel 2 here. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. So this is the cataclysmic final judgment of God, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, we are at a unique point in human history. We have a redemptive historical advantage. Here we are 2000 years after Pentecost. We have a complete canon of scripture. The Bible's complete. We know what God did at Pentecost. We know what he did at the cross. We know what he did in the intertestamental period. We know what he did in the exiles. We know what he did through the kings, the judges, the exodus, the patriarchs, the flood, the pre-patriarchs in creation. We know the whole timeline of God up to the moment. And we know, having witnessed God work through history, what God's end game was. What was his end game? To send his eternal son to die in our place on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. We know the whole story. We know how it ends. We know that Christ was victorious and will put on display the fullness of his victory at the end of all things. So when we speak of the miracles and the signs and wonders of God, which we should point people to, and we should remind them of, and we should highlight the capabilities of God to transcend the natural, to transcend the normal, to do things that are beyond our capabilities. As we point people to those wow moments when God works in history, let us not forget to preach the purpose of those wow moments. And the purpose of those wow moments is ultimately to attest to the work and power of God in Christ. That's where Joel takes it. That's where Peter takes it. Peter then points them in order to drive this point home to the greatest of all signs and wonders in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice where his sermon now goes, verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed, so who's he speaking to? The non-devout, the elitists who participated in the crucifixion of Christ. They actually set it up and then passed it off to the Romans to do the dirty work. He describes that here. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the signs and wonders point to the resurrection of Christ, his victory over evil, his victory over sin, his victory over death. This is why you cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Christ. This is why it's not actually a Christian funeral. If you don't remind people of the resurrection of the dead, which is based upon and guaranteed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the linchpin to our faith, brothers and sisters. It's the proof that he is Christus victor, that he has conquered death and that he has conquered hell and the ultimate penalty and punishment for our sin. Then what Peter does is he takes us to Psalm 16. And by the way, he's actually quoting not from the Hebrew Old Testament here. He's quoting from a Greek translation called the Septuagint, which is super helpful because that tells us that they affirm the Septuagint is an accurate translation of the word of God. So in Psalm 16, just to set the context, we have King David, the greatest king to govern the old covenant community. He had all of his warts and all of his flaws, but ultimately even in his sin, he would repent and he was later called a man after God's own heart. He was the Davidic king and the prophets tell us that it's from his line that the final Davidic king would come who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the first Adam in Eden. We have the second Adam who's Christ, the one that plunged us into sin, the one that redeemed us from our sin. And then we have the Davidic king who's David. And then we have the final and ultimate Davidic king who's Christ. And this is why when you're reading some of the Davidic Psalms, the Psalms written by David, that New Testament writers will go back and they will reinterpret those Psalms for us in a more full way. So we see Christ in them. So that's what Peter's doing here. So Psalm 16, and this is in verse 25 of Acts 2. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Notice the confidence that David expresses from his belief that God was with him. Therefore, my heart was glad. Notice the emotional confidence and my tongue rejoiced. Notice the, the verbal declaration of his confidence. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Notice the hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, meaning the realm of the dead, or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So David is declaring here his belief that God is his strength and God is present. Okay, that's nice. Good to know that. But David doesn't end there. He doesn't just affirm it intellectually. He allows it to trickle down and to affect his heart and his worship and his response to the challenges he experienced. And what Peter's doing is he's taking that and he's applying it to the new covenant believer. And he's saying essentially this, the death of Jesus Christ, yeah, it's a wow moment. The resurrection is a wow moment. The signs and wonders of the redemptive history of God are, are wow moments, but where are they pointing us to? The death of Christ has an effect. God is present and available to his people. And because of that, 
He has secured eternal life for us. So then we have hope like David expresses. We have gladness like David expresses. We have the assurance of his presence like David expresses. Now, lest one might assume then that that means, well, I have resurrection hope, like it's gonna happen, like I'm gonna die and the next day I'm gonna be resurrected. Peter helps us to understand it doesn't quite work like that. There's a bit of context here. So now he goes back and he comments on David once again, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So from the city of David, you could see the tomb of David. He's still here. People are like, what are you talking about? A resurrection? Hundreds of years ago? You expect me to believe in a resurrection when he's still in his grave? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not set, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, the ultimate messianic ruler, the ultimate Davidic king, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he interprets now Psalm 16 in light of the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this. Why? Why Pentecost? Well, we're told that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Why signs and wonders? To point people to Christ, to remind them of the work of Christ so that we might be galvanized in our faith so that we might be filled with hope and gladness and rejoicing and praise to the glory of God. Folks, God didn't give us miracles so we could go, ooh, that was cool, and then move on unchanged. The miracles that God performs throughout time are meant to transform you and focus you up so that you might be reminded that your true hope and identity and security and assurance is not in the things of this world, but in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who transcends it all. The fullness of the promise of resurrection is yet future, just as it is for David. But the first Davidic king's hope is secured by the work of the final Davidic king, King Jesus. And in the same way, if you are a follower of Christ and you've surrendered yourself to the final Davidic king, he has also secured your eternal hope and life and resurrection. You can be absolutely assured of that. What should a man's response be to the signs and wonders of God and the witness of resurrection life? Well, signs and wonders exist to bring about repentance and faith. David's or Peter's sermon continues. It's a long sermon. It's longer than my sermon, actually. But he says here, 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So there's conviction, which is the, the goal of preaching. They're cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Okay, this is where, this is where it ends, right? So this is where it leads. The, the word of God is preached. And the next question is, uh-oh, now what? I remember my own conversion. I heard the gospel. I was convicted by it, but I'm like, now what? Now what? The rich young ruler came to Jesus. What should I do to be saved? Nicodemus, what should I do to be saved? Like, what do we do now? Now what? We've seen it. Now what? Well, here's the now what answered. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the exact purpose of Joel 2's prophecy, to drive people to repentance and faith in the true and living God. That's where it's supposed to lead. The proper response to miracles is repentance and belief. Otherwise, you're just being entertained. You're just being entertained. The spirit-filled believer then will be marked by this very thing. They will be able to say, I saw, I witnessed, I experienced, God did a miracle, I repented, and I believe. So my hope, my gladness, the words of my mouth reflect that. My life is increasingly being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is what a spirit-filled believer will be marked by. And frankly, to claim the belief without life change is false faith. True belief always leads to life change. The Christian faith appeals to the mind, but it doesn't end there. There is truth to be had, but we're not just creedal Christians, confessional Christians. We're transformed Christians. Your beliefs are supposed to affect you. And what greater effect is there than to know that you have eternal life? Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, probably meaning those that are not yet born. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Here's the result. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. No one did a head count. So it's about 3,000 souls. Now in verse 39, there is a note here that this promise is for you, your children, and for those who would essentially come after. So some would interpret this to mean that if you're a believer, there's an automatic blessing passed to your children. They are in the, the, the visible church or automatically in it. And therefore the promise that's declared by the believing parent is automatically passed to the child. But I don't think that is the intention here. Rather, I believe he's speaking of the blessing of the gospel that would come in a general way to the generations that would come after Pentecost. So we don't need the Pentecost event every day to shore up our faith. Rather, the, the events of Pentecost, which testify to the events of the resurrection, 
That is the source of true hope and liberty for all people. So when it says it's for them, it's not necessarily efficaciously for all, but there's opportunity for all who would come after them. And by the way, this little statement here should have tipped off the Christians in the first century that it was unlikely that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. It seems that he indicates right out of the gates, there's gonna be a little bit of a waiting period at least. They didn't know how long, but this gospel message will be for your, your children and those that will come after them, those that are, are far off. I also wanted to draw your eye back to the text so that you would note that repentance precedes baptism. Repentance precedes baptism, but there's no other prerequisite attached to baptism than repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, one could say that repentance and baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit are inextricably linked. We like to sort of divide them out. Give me the timeline, pastor. Like how much time can I permit between repentance and baptism and the filling of the spirit? They're more or less supposed to be one event. You believe, you go get baptized. The spirit of God takes up residence in your life. This is how it works. They're inextricably linked. It's a package deal. So we mustn't think of them in terms of so much linear events but they're kind of like the cap, the gown, the cord, and the diploma at your graduation. They might be granted at different times, but it's all part of the same package. It's all part of the same event. When you graduate from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, what are the marks of a true new covenant believer? Repentance, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is the gifts that we receive. Now, this is why not to shame, not to shame, but to exhort. If you believe you must be baptized, it's not an option. Ah, but I'm scared to get up front. Okay. Is that an excuse for disobedience? Because there's a lot of things about living for Christ that are kind of scary. Well, I don't yet know enough. Can I take like 12 weeks of baptismal classes? Absolutely not. Because it's not a prerequisite to know all your systematic theology before to be baptized. That's why we've never taught baptismal classes in this church, because baptism is not what you get at the end result of a discipleship process. You repent, you are baptized, and then your discipleship processes begin. So what is the prerequisite to baptism? Repentance. If you repent when you're six, you should get baptized when you're six. If you repent when you're 66, you should get baptized when you're 66. So allow me to say this kindly, if you are a believer and you have not yet been baptized, you are a disobedient believer. You need to repent of that because the word of God is crystal clear. You repent and you're baptized. That is the sign of entrance into the new covenant community of God. It's not the means, but it is the sign. So I want to encourage you, if you're a believer, you need to get baptized. And if you aren't, don't expect the full blessings of God to be upon your life because you are living in disobedience to God. Notice here the end result. 3,000 people, give or take, 
would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine the impact of 3,000 people just like that. So it goes from 120-ish to 3,000. Now you go from 120 witnesses to 3,000 witnesses. Now you go from people witnessing in Judea, Samaria, Galilee, to Mesopotamia, to Phrygia, down to Egypt. Now you have the opportunity for the gospel to go global. And it starts with just a small gathering of people who are visited by God. One of our worship leaders, we like to pray backstage in our our green room there before the services. And when we were praying together this morning, he, in his prayer, I noted, he commented, you know, we're kind of a remnant. You know, it's it's a difficult world, we're a remnant. And it's true, we are a remnant. But that's not reason to be discouraged. You know, here we have our little church here in Windsor, Ontario, maybe a thousand and a half people that attend our church. It's just, it's just, it's little compared to this. People say, oh, you're a big church. No, we're not. This is a small church. But imagine in the early church, there was maybe about as many people as sit into this quarter section. But God descended upon them in power. He displayed himself in signs and wonders they're reminded of the essence of the gospel the prophecies of Joel and David, that what it all boils down to is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And these people like that were used of by God to go from 120 to 3000. And then where did it go from there? By the fourth century, historians estimate there were 4 million Christians on earth in 400 years. It started with a small group just being faithful, preaching the gospel, leading one person at a time to Christ. Sometimes God does an amazing thing and there's hundreds or thousands that come to faith at the times. It's like a little trickle effect. In and of ourselves, we have cause to be discouraged. But when we see what God can do, there's no no place for that in our lives at all. Because God will bring unto himself those that he desires to bring unto himself and no barrier no corrupt government, no atheistic state, no corrupt public school education system, no passive churches and no heresy will stand in the way of God performing the work that he wants to do among his people. We can believe in that. And we can find great joy in that. So this gives me a lot of hope. I hope that it gives you a lot of hope. You might feel like a remnant at times. It's a great place to be. Because when you're a remnant, you got to look up rather than looking out. And when you look up, God can descend upon his people just like he did in the first century in power and display his authority and his control over all things, even violating the laws of nature if he so chooses. He can raise the dead, he can heal the sick, he can do whatever he wants in order to bring about life change. But ultimately the goal is not in the wow to get you to go wow, it's to lead people and drive people upward to God. So take the gospel seriously, believe in it, stake your life on it. If you've not yet repented, repent. If you've not yet been baptized, be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then you'll be well-resourced for a life of gospel ministry for the rest of your life until the Lord Jesus takes you home, after which there'll be a resurrection at some point or Jesus Christ returns. So let's take seriously our, our privilege and our task and our responsibility. And let's just pray that the Lord would do what he 
chooses to do with us. 